All right, welcome to this Ask Me Anything session, uh, the Disruption Now Summit. We're honored to be here uh, with Max Tuckman of Caribou. Max, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to to kind of talk through uh, the the rough and the amazing parts of being a founder. All right. So, thank you for that. And you've had uh, you know a lot of success and. I know founders never feel like they're all the way successful because they're looking for the next step, the next step that's just part of the process. But I want to tell you that we're proud of you at this moment. And we are, uh, we're glad that you came on uh, to tell us more about your experience. And you're going to get a chance to connect. We asked everybody to ask the questions. We're going to answer them back for you live. And uh, so please interact, continue to engage. We want this to be a collaborative process. We want to grow with you. Uh, We want to learn with you. And we really want you to learn. That's the whole purpose of disruption now we're about disrupting common narratives and constructs and to do that we believe we have to build empower and grow and work together so so max let's let me uh let me ask you this question so this is like our ask me anything uh session we're if you were talking to your younger self max and you had to go back just starting off with all these bright great ideas you had about what you thought the business would be like what advice would you give your younger self in this business? And then what advice would you ignore? Oof, that's always such a good question. I think um, the, I, it's so tough. Um, I, like I said, yeah, there's just so many ups and downs of being a founder. And I think no matter what advice you, or no matter what advice I would have given myself, I don't think I would have listened to it. One, <laughs> two, because that's just me too. But um, two, I think, it's even advice is really hard to take in unless you're in the moment, right? Unless you're in the right place to hear it. Um, And I think the advice I would have given myself, which I don't think I would have been able to hear was this is going to be a crazy freaking ride. Um, You cannot don't, like I'm, I'm just kind of a planner, and I'm a type of person that likes to have things in control. You're a type of and like, no, like path A, path B's got to You got to line it all up. I have 19 contingencies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right, like, I, I feel like I would have told myself like, hey, like this is gonna, you know, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, right? Like, if I could have stepped out of the phone booth and been like, guys, like this is what's gonna, like, right? I, I just don't think I would have believed myself, and I, I would have been like, nah, she's crazy. Like, this is gonna be all up and to the right. Um, and I, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think the advice also would have landed on deaf ears because I was so passionate about this idea and I still am. And you have to be right. If you are not obsessed, obsessed, that's the word. Like it's, it's almost like to the point where you you have to be obsessed, but it sounds like you didn't need that advice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I always struggle with that question because I'm like, well, I would have told myself this. And then I was like, knowing, you know, knowing Bill and Ted, of this year, like I would have been like, nope, no, no, I don't trust that. <laughs> but what advice would you ignore? How about that? So the advice I would ignore, um, I got a lot of terrible advice from people that it was less about the advice. It was more of who not to listen to. There who were people, to to. yeah, the people who were not founders gave me terrible advice. You know, they were invest, <laughs> they were investors, right? Like, and right. not all investors are, are founders and and, and they have a very different perspective. And I feel like there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you shouldn't continue or you shouldn't raise from these people or you should know your place and like do, you know, do these certain things. And I, I feel like I was like, if you've never been in my shoes, right. don't, don't tell me what to do. Can you just think of some advice? We don't, you know, I have to tell the person is, but that some of the advice that you got, you're like, 
that somebody may be getting right now, I'm sure is getting, you know, bad advice is in plenty of supply nowadays. So it's, it's everybody believes that they're an expert in everything and they can go online and tell the world and some people will believe that person because they look like they're, because they, oh, they have 10,000 followers, they must know what they're talking about, right? Uh, but no, not necessarily. So can you think of, is there one thing that sticks out in your mind or that just comes top of mind? You're like, damn, that was some really dumbass advice. I don't, so sorry. I don't hope, hope I doesn't offend you me cussing, but you know, it is what it is. Go ahead. No, actually, I swear a lot. And I try to really reel it in for, for these because I'm like, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know where everyone's at. <laughs> uh, the name of my show is Disruption Now. I do not care. So go ahead. If Yeah. Love it. Well, I swear like a sailor. Um, so, all right, we're, it's on. Um, I, I can't think of, I'm trying to think of like some really bad, dumb advice. Uh, well, oh, okay, here, okay, I have a perfect example. I remember, um, so again, I'm building and growing my company in Miami. Right. I'm from Miami, I'm Cuban, right? This is my home, this is where my people speak the same language, this is where I get a good yep. cafe con leche, where I can eat my arroz and frijoles, like, Miami. We love Miami, by the way. We have a large Miami contingent here. Black Angels Miami is here. They're yes, coming. yes. Monique Island Mosley with Rain Ventures is coming. We have yep. uh, uh, Carla Ferguson. Do you know the Yielding Group? No, but yeah, she has a large art dealership there. Uh, she's there. We have a lot of we have, we're we're strongly represented in South Florida. So well, Miami's doing. I mean, again, um, you know, it's there's there's not a lot of I wouldn't call it an equitable situation. Uh, between the the Latinx population and the Black population in Miami at all, right. um, but there are a lot of really great things happening in in Black Tech. We have Black Tech Week. We have um, the you know Tribe uh, space called Tribe. We have a co-working yep. space specifically. In, Bri Bri Brian um, Burkin, he's been on the show. Yeah, Brian from Kairos. Uh, and there's a lot more um, that I think people are are trying to do because it is not an equitable situation. But um, so yeah, so so you know, born and raised Miami, like love Miami. Also, the cost of doing business in Miami and running a company is so much lower than trying to do it in San Francisco. So the, the big piece of advice that I got when I was first starting out was from everyone being like, oh, you can't, you can't build and grow your company in Miami. You have to move to San Francisco. You have to be part of Y Combinator or some other douchey white boy thing. Um, and I was like, no, I don't. Um, and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm so glad. Like I, I actually, my first startup was, I called in Broville. It was in Palo Alto in, in the Valley. And I just like literally would go, for days without seeing another woman, without seeing another person of color. Um, it, it just, the, the brotasticness of it was, was very, just, it was a bad culture. And I was like, first of all, I don't want to build and grow my company in that terrible culture. Um, I don't want, I don't love San Francisco. I love Miami. It's my, Miami is my place of power. Um, and so I'm really glad that I, they didn't take that advice where people were like, well, if you want to run a startup, if you want to get investment, you have to move to San Francisco. Um, because I think I, I don't think we would be where we are today if I had taken that advice. Yeah. So what, what surprised you most about running about running about becoming a founder? And I'll say this, we had a survey come out and these were some of the responses that we gave for an answer. We said, what surprised you most about being a startup founder? We put one, the challenge of managing the process and the, just the details of running the business. Uh, B, the lead time it takes to convert sales or raising capital. C, underestimating the amount of capital it takes to actually sustain the business. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that's going to be your answer. Or D, the, uh, D, the amount of time it actually consumed your life. Or E, the emotional roller coaster of the process at large. Which of those surprised you the most? No, you can't choose one. Those are you all can't. like, <laughs> that's, those are, it's, it, that's Start with the, the one that speaks to you the most. Is it the roller coaster ride? Is it the, cause there's, there's some, one of those that speak to you more than the other. Like, like for me, 
because I'm a nat- I'm, I'm a nat- I'm a visionary person. I'm really good at setting the vision, communicating. That's my thing. I'm not the operations person. Uh, I'm not so like managing the processes of the details. That is the that and then underestimating the lead time for sales was my were my or my have been my biggest surprises. But that's me. I no, I, w- I would say pretty much the same for me. I didn't. I've always been in roles where I it was very clear if I was the visionary person or if I was the operational person. And I think with a, a with a startup. So I, I went to art school, um, and I remember we would always talk about how art school was one of the hardest programs because you're literally creating something from nothing right yep. there. Well, I guess, I guess coding is, is very similar as well, but sometimes you have structure, like literally with art, you have a blank canvas or you have a, a mannequin that you're about to put something on. And, um, and I feel like that's a very similar analogy for a startup. It's like you, first of all, you don't know what you don't know, right? DK, DK, um, yeah. two, you are managing, you are building out a vision, but you are also like in the details You're in the details and the big picture. And like, again, I, you know, when I've, when I was executive director of teach for America, like I was, I was the vision. I was the strategy. I had people underneath me who were dealing with the operations and the details in, you know, every day at caribou, even now with a bigger team, we're we're a team of 12. Now I still am, am kind of doing both. I'm doing less of the day to day because we have more people to do that. Right. But I, I'm still a founder. I'm, I'm still really responsible for a lot of that stuff. The other stuff I think kind of, falls into that dissonance, right? Which is because, because you are strategy and operations, you don't realize sometimes like how much things cost or how long it's going to take to raise money or how fast that money is going to go away. One of the things we raised our first 1.3 in 2018 um, and my co-founder and I did not celebrate. Um, and by the time we wanted to celebrate, by the time we, we were running out of cash and we were like, we can't spend money. The next 2 million. Yeah. Yeah, So we, we uh, corrected that. And when we raised the 1.7 last year, we immediately went out and we celebrated and we had like a really nice dinner together and we, you know, kind of pat ourselves on the back and we're like, So you think right, it's important to celebrate those milestones, even though that's what, you know, it's important to, to, to celebrate and take those moments. I, I do. Um, and now as I build out a team, I think it's even more important. Like we hit a pretty big milestone as a team internally. Uh, the other day, and and we've got some ideas about how we're going to celebrate that, and like every kind of big milestone. We oh, try is to it, celebrate is, as a it's not it's not public yet. No, can't say. Okay, it. all right. Um, but uh, but we also, you know, like I'm I'm trying to figure out like I think um, the well, the other thing is I think for me I am I'm very not my my motivation doesn't come from external things, right? It comes from right. internal. So if I if I raised you know th- a three million dollar seed round, like I'm good. I don't need to celebrate it. I don't need to like go out. I don't need to like get my nails. Like I, there's, I'm like, okay, move on. Right. Um, but I also realized that again, because we missed that first moment, I was like, it is actually important to, to pause because there are so many small wins. There are so many big wins. Like you really should pause and, and take in the fact that you accomplished something. Right. Because yeah. the, it, it's also a good reminder, creates a memory for the tough times. So yes. when, they, well, when they, they, they are coming, it's not going well. Yeah. yeah. Um, then you, you kind of have an anchor and you're like, Hey, remember that time where we were celebrating and um, this is actually a really funny story. We were, we had raised a pre-seed, right? So like itty bitty money. Um, but we, we, you know, we decided to have like a lunch to like, you know, so we did kind of celebrate that one, but it was like a little lunch. It was like, let's just like get together and have a little lunch. 
Um, but A-Rod, uh, the baseball player, was was about to promote Caribou. And of course, oh, wow. his people start getting in touch with me during our celebratory lunch. So like we didn't even really get to celebrate that one because I was like so worried about it. I was like, oh, wait, what are they going to post? Okay, like let me make sure everything. My co-founder is like sitting across from me. He's like, cool, this was fun. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, taking that time and like uninterrupted time, uh, I think it's important. Uh, but yeah, if you get A-Rod to promote your product, you might have to take some time. I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. I guess that's one of those things that happened. So let's, um, let's get into what Caribou is, how you came to the vision. Like, so what, so what is Caribou for those who don't know? And what does it do? And why are you so passionate about it? Yeah, so uh, we bring families together in virtual playdates. That's the, that's the kind of easiest way to say what we do. Um, our product, we are, we are the leading kind of educational family entertainment platform that helps kids zero to 13 to have virtual play dates with family and friends, no matter how far apart they are, right? So imagine um, we did have a pretty big market before the pandemic, and now with the pandemic, it's it's I imagine bonkers. it's, yeah, it's, yes. Because what I think happened is um, grandma, we call her glamma, right? So glamorous grandma. In Spanish, yeah. it's fabuela, abuela fabulosa. Yeah, because um, nobody really wants to be called grandma. Some people in the black community, no, they, call, they want to be called Mimi. They want to be called nothing but yeah, something else. Don't call me grandmother. Well, not only that, but when I talk to investors about my core customer and my market, imagine me walking in and being like, oh, it's, it's a grandma. Immediately, someone's head goes to, oh, this person's 90 years old. They have a life alert necklace and a cane. Like, this is a terrible product and a terrible market. And like, they're never going to get any traction. So we call her Glamma and we show pictures of Kris Jenner, Tina Knowles, Goldie Hawn. And we say, this is a woman 50 to 70. This is who we're going after. And as soon as we show that picture and we call her Glamma, there's something that changes where people are like, oh, yeah, that is a growing market. And that woman has... You know, I, I would never, I would have never thought of that, Max, till you said it that way. But people's biases and maybe my bias would have clicked in too. Like, oh, you're talking about it. Somebody is never going to get on the internet. Never mm-hmm. going. You, you're, you're marketing to somebody that's going to have no interest in doing that. They just want to do what they've always been doing, right? Uh, so, did you come up with that through? Was that just instinctively there for you, based upon your experiences and knowing glamas, or was it from the experience of people shutting down their perspective as soon as you said, "This is our target market." So uh, there's a couple pieces to this. So when we first launched Caribou, so as, as I mentioned, right, it's, it's virtual play dates. It's you can read and draw together in a video call. So some people watching this might be like, well, what's the difference between this and FaceTime? Well, in FaceTime, you have a huge children's book and you're putting it, you know, you're trying to get it in front of a tiny little camera screen and the kid can't see you and you can't see them. And if you have to buy two books where, you know, the kid has the book and you have the book when you're a traveling parent and it's a terrible experience to try and do this through FaceTime. So our app has an in-app library. We have thousands of books and activity sheets and coloring and drawing and games and recipes and origami and things you can do together in a video call. So when we first launched Caribou, uh, when we publicly launched in 2017, my co-founder and I, we were for the traveling parent. I had been a management consultant. I knew a lot of people were traveling Monday through Thursday. um, And I was just like, my gosh, like parents really need this. Okay, well, we found out. <laughs> um, so we raised the 1.3. That was like the first part of our, our seed round. Um, and we, we knew the statistic that 90% of startups fail between seed and series A because they right. run out of cash looking for product market fit. So we were like, we need to find product market fit and ASAP. And right around that time, First Round Capital had just come out with an article, an interview with um, Rahul from Superhuman. Um, right. And he was using the Sean Ellis growth hacking uh, questionnaire, which 
So finding product market fit is an art, not a science. But Sean Ellis okay. really put, uh, he put kind of a science to it. And Rahul had used this at Superhuman and had been really successful. So I was reading so, this article. So what's like, that? We'll make sure to get people get it. What is that? that, that, yeah. that you, what's the advice? Um, so I would look up first round capital, Rahul, superhuman, um, and you okay. should be able to find this article. But what they, what, what he did is he asked his power users four questions. And again, this is, you know, kind of a lot of people use this and they call it different things, but you ask, it's a four question survey. The first question is, would you be devastated if caribou went away? Right. Or whatever product. Right. Um, and the first question, what you're trying to figure out is who lives and dies by your product, right? Who is like obsessed, who will pay money, who will pay more money, right? Because their your product is just an antibiotic, not a vitamin. And, um, and then you have three other questions, right? The other th the three questions, I can't even remember what they are, but because the first one's so important, but the, the other three are like, who is this for? Who is this not for? What would you improve about the product or something like that? Um, and the reason why the first question is so important is that if someone could care less if you live or die, or could care less if your product exists in the world, why are you listening to their advice? Mm. And I think that's one of the things that's really tough with founders is you're getting feedback from your users all the time. But if your users don't care if you live or die, if they would not pay for your product, right? You're talking to free users and then you're building features for them. This is how all startups die, right? Uh, because yeah. you're just running around like a chicken with your head cut off. So I mean, we that's, did such this that's such an important point that I'll let you finish. Yeah, we've talked about this before too on the show and many times over in order to grow, you have to eliminate like people think tr trying to <clears throat> figure out what is the perfect product that can appeal to the most people is a stupid way to think about it, right? It's not, it's who yeah. are your diehard fans? Who are your top 100 people that you need to convert? Not who are the million customers I need to get? Because if you don't know that number, you're not going to ever get to the million. So you want to grow, you got to eliminate. Go ahead. Well, and investors will look at that. They'll say, oh, wow, you got a million people. Great. How many of them are using the product? How many of them retained, right? Like investors are savvy. Like they, they, you know, you could, yes, you can go out and spend a lot of money and get a million users, but if they don't stick with you, if you've just kind of, you know, kind of gone wider than, than more narrow, you're, you're kind of screwed. So this was actually advice uh, given to me by the founder of Curl Mix. She had gotten to her first million in revenue and she was like, I had to fire some of my customers to get there. And I was like, what does that mean? And I just thought that was so helpful because that's exactly what she was saying is like, you have to figure out who that core customer is and you need to ignore, not ignore. I mean, other people are going to constantly come in, but like you kind of need to focus on that core customer and ignore right. the needs of those customers that again, could, could care less if you exist. So when we did this survey, um, we, that's when we figured out, whoa, grandparents are obsessed with this thing because think about a grandparent. They're so trying you, found to this out through you found this out through data, data, in other just words. Just through the survey. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah. Um, and it was, what was so great about it is that it gave us a, like a place to focus. Like you said, right? We started firing our, a bunch of our customers. We were like, hey, uncle who likes to use this recreationally like once a month, we're not going to build for you, right? Um, right? And even the traveling parent, they wanted to, they wanted features of like, oh, we want to upload homework. And I was like, but you don't care if I live or die. You have other products you can use, but Glamma was like obsessed. She was like, there is nothing like this out in the market for me who is trying to build a relationship with my grandchild through mobile and tablet. And it sucks, right? Like FaceTime sucks or whatever else. And also FaceTime only works iPhone to iPhone or iOS to iOS, Correct. right? So you can't, if you're an iOS and Android family, like grandma still can't FaceTime, right? You have to get on WhatsApp or Facebook messenger or, or whatever. So there was, so that's when we figured that out. And then Ashley Brazier from Lightspeed um, has been doing some research on this market. So she calls them middlers. I think that sounds very Lord of the Rings kind of middle earth. So I, <laughs> I chose, 
I chose Glamma. Glamma plays better. <laughs> with I, I agree. I agree. That sounds much better. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I used her research because, um, again, investors are looking for growing markets and you as a founder, right? Don't always just do what investors want you to do, but you know, they're right. smart. They're pretty smart people. Yeah. Um, but for us, we, we realize 10,000 people a day become seniors. That's a growing market. Also, wow. there's a ton of bias against seniors in how tech savvy they are. Absolutely. So I was like, it's an underestimated market, right? And so we found this, this like really amazing opportunity that no one else kind of, everyone else is fighting for millennial mom on Instagram. I was like, I'm going to go after millennial mom's mom who's on Facebook, on her iPad. Like, that's awesome. Genius. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, like knowing your market was key and that, 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 that's really, I think, really insightful uh, observations and, and data for, 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 for people to take away. Let's, let's move to, uh, let's think about a moment that you can think as your, you know, when you talk, we talked about the emotional roller coaster of the process. Can you think of a moment that seemed like, oh my God, this was horrible. Like it, it felt like it was such a, such a, such a failure, such a L, such a loss but that ended up actually setting you up for more opportunities in the future. Can you think about that now and in hindsight, if you have, if you have an example like that? So many L's, um, but you're right. Every L you turn it into, right? Like I, I see every mistake or every loss as a learning opportunity, right? Like if um, you never want to make that mistake twice and you're going to make mistakes, right? So what did you learn from it? What did you, what did you really test? And that's, that's what everything is. Everything's just a test. Um, and I think there's so many places where, uh, you know, we, we went down the wrong direction or we built the wrong thing or we went after the wrong audience or we went after the wrong investor or we, right. um, well, think about the one. There's so many, but yeah, think about what I know, sticks, I know there's like, one in your brain. <laughs> what's the, what's, what's something that sticks in your brain? The first thing that came like, wow, that was something that I really just took and that if I, I can instruct people on how they can view that and, and, and grow from that yeah. and how I've grown from that experience. Can you think of one? So the, uh, the best example is probably um, when you're a founder and you're managing your runway, you are always thinking about, okay, every time someone presents you with an opportunity for money, you have to make a decision. Uh, is this a good person to take money from? Um, will they take us to the next level? Will they be founder friendly? Will they be a good partner? And then do I have enough runway if I, if I say no, right. If this, if this person is not right, do I have to take the money because we're going to run out of cash or right. you know, is my, is my back against the wall? And this is exactly what happened to us last year where we were, we were raising kind of that second part of the seed round in, um, in the spring of 2019, we met uh, an investor that we really liked. I mean, he really understood our market. He had a lot of really good ideas for us, um, would have been a great partner. And then we got the term sheet for it's half a million dollars. Right. So that's going to extend our runway pretty dramatically. And we were already starting, obviously, to, to raise in the spring. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know is there is no raising over the summer. Right. Everyone's on vacation. It's just guys kind of like you wouldn't raise over the winter holidays. Right. Um, people are just kind of distracted over the summer. So we knew we were starting into the summer. So I had to take that into account. And I was like, is this. So we get the term sheet and it's predatory AF. Right. Um, right. This guy was was betting against us. Right. Um, which again, that's look, you can't blame an investor for trying to make money. That's what they do. Right. But there are some investors that are going to do it in a predatory way. And there's some investors that are going to bet on the upside and going to bet on you as a person to be able to do things. And at the early stages, 
when you get all those predatory terms or someone in the early stages trying to get on your board for a $10,000 check, like that is predatory, right? In the beginning stages, you are trying to build something. And when you have these people who now are making decisions with you, like when you're still kind of in that very like formative time, it's, it, this is, I mean, look what happened to Brian, right? He brought on a board yep. member way too yep. early. And, yep. and that's a really, that's a, a He talked a about that as his, one of his, that was his, that was his learning lesson. Yeah. So, so here we have this guy, he presents us with a predatory term sheet. I'm freaking out because my runway is dwindling and here's an opportunity for $500,000. Um, and I said, no. Yeah. And, and at the moment, right. Looking back, I'm like, ha, you were fine. But in the moment I was like, oh my God, I literally could have just killed my company. Right. Because we may run out of cash before we're able to raise that amount of money. And because of that moment, because of that loss of, of that cash, we ended up turning to equity crowdfunding, which. Right. And let's actually yeah. go to that. Cause we, cause we <laughs> talked about that. And they said like, I, I do believe this is a new opportunity and a new way for us. It's not that new, but it's still, it's still fairly new. Uh, a process yeah. to where uh, crowd investing, which I, you know, we, we want to be proponents of, we want to actually help more people do it. Um, talk about how you became successful. You know, Don, who we we're going to interview just a little bit after this, had a, I think a, she has success, but a, but a really different path. People looking at crowd investing think that you probably have to have a huge social media following. You got to be well known. You have to already just have a whole bunch of thousands of uh, uh, potential investors in the gate. Tell them your process to success, how you were able to distinguish yourself and how you went about doing that and how you ultimately became successful in that, in that yeah. path for crowd investing. Cause I do think there is, it's a new, it's a new way of getting funding uh, that, that many of us are looking at now. Well, and also diverse founders are, are being really successful in equity crowdfunding, which is yes. again, I think the numbers of us underrepresented founders that have been successful in equity crowdfunding is a higher percentage than divert, you know, underrepresented and underestimated founders have been successful in venture capital. Right. Because uh, uh, yeah, the numbers are yeah. ridiculous there. It's, yeah. Yeah. Those are super small and equity crowdfunding again, still nascent, but we're doing really well. Um, I think we're on like our eighth black woman to raise over a million dollars on equity crowdfunding, right? Like that's insane. Yep. Um, so, okay. So equity crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, so Don had probably more of a social following, but I relied on an email list, right? Like I had a network from when I worked at the white house, from when I was a management consultant from my business school days, um, I had a huge email list and a huge network that I could go after. That is actually important. That is critical. You cannot do a successful equity crowdfund, I think, without that. Um, but it, ha it, it doesn't have to be social media, right? You don't have to have a blue check mark to do it, but right. you do have to have some kind of. How large list. was your email list? Like over 10,000 people. Yeah. You yeah, know, that's like, a good size. Yeah. I mean, and that was, that's the list I started with, right? Um, and that's that's the important part is you do have to start with a list because everyone, I think, especially for those of us that have been super successful in equity crowdfunding, yeah. we give off this vibe that equity crowdfunding is so easy. You just put up, it's like dating. It's like, you know, uh, online dating. It's like, you just put up a profile and like everyone swipe wants left. to marry you're, you're, you. Yeah. You're stud. Yeah. <laughs> no, a lot of work goes into that profile photo. Right. And like, and <laughs> it's the same thing with like, with equity crowdfunding, a lot of work goes into, it's, it's almost like, um, B2B versus B2C, right? Both right. of them are really hard, but B2C requires a marketing team and B2B requires a sales team. It's just, it's the same hard. It's just a different team. So, or a different right. skill set. So, so with, it requires a marketing team and a marketing strategy and a, and a market yeah. that 
that knows you specifically. I think I think that's really important to point out. It, it's funny the survey the survey we did uh, in terms of what was what were the biggest issues with uh, uh, diverse founders in terms of getting access to capital. The, the, the number one answer was the lack of the uh, of the network, right? And and that that's one of the biggest issues. You know, my hope is that you know th- this this platform will help to build that. That's that's my goal with this platform, right? So because yeah. you know people people I think. Uh, underestimate the importance of relationships. Relationships is how you get funding. I mean, people, you know, and people think like, okay, it's transactional. It's relationships first. And people know, knew you, uh, believed in you over the years. And you have credibility with this. I'll say like, you work for Teach for America. You work for the White House. So people, it's not like you came out of the blue and said, let me come up with this idea to help kids and parents with educational. And you didn't, uh, with, 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 uh, educational opportunities and just it didn't have any actual center in that so I tell people you have to know like what is it what problem are you solving and why are you the one to solve it and I think yeah and then do you have a network behind you that understands that 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 you are the person that you're the right person to actually do this so you do you've come there I, I didn't think about it from the point of view of uh, if you're dealing with you know you're dealing with a sales team versus a marketing team so you have to have a really good marketing team for your uh for your crowd investing strategy. Tell me what you exactly. look for in a marketing team and what you think helped make you successful. You already had the market, but what in the marketing yeah. team that- uh, the, the, Oh, there they, was no marketing team. Oh, it was just it was, you, okay. It was just me. I was the okay. marketing team. <laughs> okay, so give us the, okay, well look, you, how much did you raise online? You raised them, was it a million? Two, 1. 1. 1. 1.7. 1.7, just a little bit of With change. this marketing team. <laughs> yeah, with one person, okay. Tell me how yeah. you went about your marketing. Like, so how did you, yeah. How did you, how did you, how did you go out there and start the process? So the other thing I want to focus on, which you, you just mentioned is, um, okay, fine. There might be someone listening to this. Who's like, well, I didn't go to a fancy business school. I didn't work at the white house. I wasn't meant you're like, I don't have that list of 10,000 plus, you know, close friends and family. Um, you can build that. And I built it over time too. Right. It's, it's, right. um, and it's a, what I actually did a lot of that list in, in the last couple of years running caribou was from people I met at conferences. I did pitch competitions like a crazy person. My whole first year we were bootstrapped and we won cash and prizes from being the winner or finalist in over 30 pitch competitions. At each of those pitch competitions, I met investors, I met judges, right? The judges were usually investors. They were ecosystem builders. Like I also built that list um, over some years. So for anyone who's freaking out, um, and being like, oh my God, I can't do this. You can just know that you need to start with the list. So if you don't have that list, you need to give yourself six months to build that list. And then what are the things that you're doing to build that list? Right. So I, I wouldn't start a crowdfunding campaign, um, whether it's, you know, uh, rewards based product, um, crowdfunding, which is a Kickstarter or Indiegogo or equity crowdfunding. I would not start either one of those without a list. Um, and then, and then once you have that list, it is a marketing play the entire summer. I just, I slept four hours a night, which is my usual. Um, but it was, I was going to bed. I usually go to bed around 3 AM, but now I was going to bed at 6 AM just cause I was just so slammed. Right. Um, right. and, uh, you are doing, you're emailing that list constantly, right? You're setting up drip campaigns. Like did they open? Did they not open? What did they do? Did they finally, you know, kind of invest? Um, your you use, mail, your, use MailChimp for that or constant contact? Neither. I, neither. uh, I do everything through Gmail and yam. Uh, yam is a mail merge tool called yet another mail merge. And it's okay. super fast and easy. Um, the okay. MailChimps of the world just like, it, like 
Yes, there, but a lot of times, I don't know. Anyways, I don't like them. Yeah, yeah so yeah, I no, just, I yeah, go, okay. and it's also more personal, right? To just get a Gmail from from someone instead of something that looks super designed, then it feels right. like, oh, this is, because um, remember, the, this, these are people that know you and trust you and you're building that validity. That was another thing that we had um, in, in our back pocket was we had been in the press a million times. We had celebrity, uh, you know, kind of partnerships. We had really big brands that had invested in us already. So we had that credibility. Sometimes when people go into equity crowdfunding, they're, they're doing this, you know, as they launch. Um, so whatever you can do to prove that. So you don't, advise, you don't advise that. It sounds like you advise having some runway of credibility one way or another. Yeah, you have to, I mean, you don't have to, but it makes things easier is what I'll say, right? Because people, you know, again, they're, they're investing in you. They, they don't know you personally right. sometimes, right? Like most, so 30% of our investors were people that I knew from that list and 70% were people I've never met in my life. Um, they just saw your, your social credibility and assumed like this is somebody I want to take an op a, a, a opportunity with and take a risk with, which is, I mean, Don has a similar story. But really, I mean, the reason why she has that huge following is because she's been doing this similar path, right? She was out there making the pitches and uh, I think Angela Bitten has something. She's been in the, she's been in this for a long time, right? And she, yeah. like, I, I don't even know her that well, but I know she talks about data and about how the, how the importance of protecting your own data is. And I know, and, I, and I, when I listen to her, I believe her. I think that comes down to it. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and that's what you're doing is you're also, you're reaching out to people on LinkedIn. You're, you're, you reaching out to people that you, you're cold on LinkedIn, telling them about your raise. You're looking for everyone that says angel investor in their bio. How much time would you say you were doing that? Cause you, you said you were up to wow. I mean, like I need some sleep. So good for you. But like you were up to, yeah. uh, okay. you were, how, how much time would you spend just reaching out, just, pu just putting stuff on, on Instagram and whatever you were, that was all your time basically sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it's literally your full-time job. That's another hard part about doing equity crowdfunding when, when you're new. Well, here's the thing. Let me, let me put it this way. Reaching a million is going to be a lot harder if you're new to the game, right? Your product is new. You don't have that validation. You don't have that huge email list. I personally think the only way to get to a million or a million plus is if you have those things in place, right? So equity crowdfunding might still be an option for you, um, to raise 200K or 500K, right? Most people stall around 200K. So that's like a good goal. Um, but remember that there's costs associated with it, right? There's your time, there's the marketing that you're doing it. There's the time away from your business where you're really yep. just focused on this. Um, there's the fee that you have to pay. Equity crowdfunding comes with a fee. There's the time before you get the cash, right? Cause it all yep. goes into escrow and things have to be like- And you know, did and you actually the, advertise on social media? You did that, right? We did, and we were actually really successful. We yeah. had a really high ROI. I want to tell people that, like how ads. important that is. But you had to invest, my guest, in, yeah. in research and marketing and do it in digital targeting. And this is why th this stuff works. So, like, it's, you know, but you have to know your market. You knew your market. We did. And also, again, you're, you're right. You have to you spend money to make money, right? So, a lot of the Facebook ads, because they were doing so well, um, we, you know, it was a good investment. But some people have spent like $25,000 just in the Facebook ads and marketing to, yeah. to get their campaign to be successful. I don't think we spent more than 5,000. I mean, That's it really was, good. our campaign was so insanely successful, like in so many different ways and the word of mouth. And then we had celebrities who were investing. We had two NFL players invest, uh, which then kind of, you know, made it even more viral. We hit the 1 million in two months, which is unheard of. Right. We hit the 1.7 in three months. I mean, it was just it, the campaign took a life of its own. And the, the other really cool thing. So some people, if you're in the consumer space, you like in breweries. Right. So microbreweries are really popular on equity crowdfunding because you have a, a membership list. And so your customers become your investors. 
with Caribou, we knew our customers weren't going to be investors, right? That just wasn't, remember an equity crowdfunding customer, uh, sorry, an equity crowdfunding investor is a very specific type of person, right? It's, that's why social media, like followings, I don't think actually makes any difference because just because someone's following on social media doesn't mean that they fit that criteria of wanting to be an equity crowdfunding investor, which is why the Facebook ads are actually so important because you can target. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a young dude. That's the demographic of an equity crowdfunding investor, right? But we broke that model because we ended up with investors that became customers. So the glamas were That's like- That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, the, the glamas were like, Yes, it was amazing. It was so perfect. I mean, literally like the best decision we ever made was doing equity crowdfunding because we ended up with all these glamas that were like, I have this pain point and I'm, I can afford to invest and I want to invest and I want this to be the next, you know, lift or, or a way. Um, and so they would invest and then they would- start using caribou because they were like, I have this problem. Um, so that, that was great. No, that is great. Uh, talk, let's have a talk about building a team and founders and the, in the, in the struggles you can have there. Um, we asked a survey and, 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 and in the survey we asked, uh, generally like what, what, what's the biggest challenge or what's the most important aspect actually in finding a co-founder? Is it their character? Is it their commitment to the mission? Is it their, ability to raise money or have some other ability that you may not have? Is it, or is it one of those or is it, some, you know, if, what would you choose out of those? Like, you know, commitment, character, the ability to fill something that you may not be that good at. Uh, what's most important out of those three? I would say there's two and the two are non-negotiable. One is trust and the other is complementary skill set. Yep. Um, so, so that goes the character, character. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like you can trust someone implicitly, but they don't have a complementary skill set to you, right? Yep. Like you trust them, but they can do the same thing you do, or they want to be in all the same, they want to be on the pitch competition stage. And you're like, you need to go build the company, right? Or you need to go build the product. Um, but someone may have a complementary skill set to you, but if you can't trust them, if you don't believe that they're going to work a thousand percent on this product like you are. I mean, that's a big reason why founders kind of break up uh, because both are not as committed or, you know, each one right. or one has like a life situation that comes up and they're like, sorry, I, I need money. I need to have a salary. Like um, those things come up, but you can't predict those. So the two things I would always look for in a co-founder is do they have a complementary skill set to mine, whatever that is. Right. So yeah. I was the fundraiser. I needed someone who wasn't a fundraiser. I needed someone who could go build the product while I was fundraising. Um, and he was looking for the same thing. He was like, I can build a product, but I don't want to talk to strangers. And I was like, okay, well, perfect. Match me in heaven. But we had to implicitly trust each other. Um, we spend more time. He has a wife and I spend more time with him than I think he spends with his wife. Just, I mean that you have to be obsessed. Um, you both have, and that's, it's like a marriage, right? Like you both have to be obsessed with this working. Yeah. And so have you, have you found, did you ever get that wrong? And did you, did you, did you build with someone that you thought it would work and you had to uh, figure so that, out how to yeah. pivot to that? Like, I, I love to hear that, that, cause I know we discussed that beforehand and I knew that I, I sound like there was something there. So, well, yeah, the, the first startup um, in, in Broville, uh, I had a co-founder who was a lovely person. He was awesome, but we had, this was your former set. company. So you, this is your, that was your first company. It was, I mean, it that actually never took off because the network okay. effects weren't there. We were, we were trying to build a foodie, like an eHarmony for foodies company yeah. at a time where food spotting and Yelp and all these other companies were kind of taking off and they were taking our market. Sure. Um, and for our product to work, you know, you, you need 
networks and you need the network effects. And so we actually never ended up launching, but we, we went out to, you know, the, you know, Palo Alto, San Francisco area. And like, we were trying to make it work. But the, the thing again, now that that experience taught me when looking for my next co-founder, try to not find someone that you just have a lot of fun with, who's a lot like you. Um, because then that's the problem, right? It's like, we both wanted to do marketing. We both wanted to do restaurant research. We both wanted to talk to investors because that's my skill set. That was his skill set. Um, and that's when we realized, wait a second, like, first of all, the, the, the idea wasn't going to work because of the market, but then I think the founding relationship wasn't going to work either. Yeah. No, uh, and that, that's, see, but you had a interesting, you had a failure to lead that way, uh, to, to that actually left you to that. So maybe that was your answer. So I don't know. It helped. It helped with this one. Cause I was like, when I found my co-founder at, at Caribou, I was like, it was so quick to be like, yeah, this is it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we want you to keep bringing in the answer, uh, the, the questions you have. We're going to make sure that Max gets, gets a chance to answer them for you. Let me say this. So if you had a committee of three, uh, another asked me, uh, ask you anything. You have a committee of three, uh, living or dead, that you can ask for business advice, life advice. Who would those three people be and why? Mm. I love this question. Oh, this is like the dead people at dinner question. Um, <laughs> And also, I think it's so important. I think a lot of times the first answer is three white men, right? So I'm always thoughtful about like who, who in the world um, that I listen to and, and, you know, a lot of these examples. So the first person is always Nelson Mandela um, because uh, I, I need sometimes advice on how to take the high road, right? Like I think, um, <laughs> not even the high road, but like, <laughs> but like the, I need someone like him to be like, Yes, there are wrongs that have been done. Yes, you know, um, like things, I don't, I don't know how to like say this exactly, but like. No, I get it. Like, yeah, I mean, cause it's, it, you, it, it, it's easy you need to, to ignore the pettiness, right? Like yeah. I, I think that that's his lesson. The microaggressions, like, listen, yeah. I, I, it's very tough when people say something like that was so stupid, but you gotta figure out how to respond. And that emotional, emotional response intelligence is a ongoing journey, but go ahead. For me too. Exactly, yeah. You and yeah, I have yeah, the same type of personality, I can tell. Yeah, yeah, and it, right, because I think I can pop off, right? And like it's, uh, I think um, that I remember in Invictus, right? And not to you know boil his entire uh, memory to a movie, but I think that movie encapsulated hit that skill that he had that I think is, um, it's it's like almost like it's like it's like a monk, right? It's it's like a, such a level of self actualization and realization that like most of us haven't reached yet. So I would, I would seek him for, for that type of like, how do I just okay. focus on the real important things? Um, I think Golda Meir is one of my heroes. She was uh, one of the uh, president, no, prime ministers of uh, Israel. She was uh, one of the first female global leaders. And I remember that there's a part of her story where um, she had to start a war. You know, because when you're the prime minister of Israel, you start in a lot of wars or, you're, or you get involved in them. Yeah. Um, and she was the first person, again, stereotypically as a woman, right? She, she thought of the war not as what are the economic benefits to this or what's the strategic or, or kind of like, what, are we, what do we need to win here? She thought of it as I'm sending children to, to possible death, right? Like she thought of the human aspect of it. Right. Um, and I think a lot of times 
And especially this is why you invest in, in female founders, right? This is why we are a lot of times why we bring higher returns because we do take all of those things into account when we make decisions. Yeah. I remember when I was in business school, um, you know, uh, I went to Harvard business school where it's the three M's it's McKinsey military uh, and Mormons. And sort of like a lot of your class is made up of those three M's. Um, and so we had a lot of military in our class. And I remember our professor started the, the year with pay attention to when your military classmates say something, right? Because a lot of people, I think from the business world would just be like, you don't know what the hell you're talking about military person, right? You've never been with a PL and a big decision and bringing right. in a billion dollar account. Um, but what the professor was trying to say is the military uh, members of your class are the only ones that had to possibly make a decision where someone was going to live or die. Mm. And phew, that still gives me chills. And I was just like, yeah, you have to take a lot of more, you have to really be thoughtful about the things, the factors that go into a decision um, when you are on a battlefield versus, you know, when you're in a cushy, you know, uh, building in, in Manhattan. Um, and so again, I think that's where Golda would come in where it's just like, how do we take into account all of the human aspects of the decisions that we're making? Um, wow. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are the two that I always kind of like think about, I don't have a third. I, you don't I, have to have someone, a third. It's fine. Yeah. I, I, you know, I appreciate you being on the show. I'm going to ask you a final question. You have a, okay. Google ad, Facebook ad, whatever you want to say that says your beliefs, your philosophy, what would that be and why? So this is going to sound weird, but in fourth grade, <laughs> um, I became obsessed with the Nike um, mantra, which was just do it. And right. ever since fourth grade, I've just been on a path of just freaking do it. Yeah. All right. That's pretty easy. Um, I mean, mine is I have a define yourself for yourself by yourself because it's my mother. I, I, I was, um, I, had, I struggled in school early on and I was in a learning, I was put in learning, learning disability classes and basically decided that wasn't going to be the route. It's not what I'm going to do. I know you appreciate this being in education. Um, and so once that decision was made, it was like, this was huge controversy. They were telling, they were telling my parents though, he's going to fail. It's never going to happen. He's not going to be able to uh, perform at a high level in these advanced classes and you know this teacher particularly that I was close to said that look Rob um, you're not uh, you're not going to be able to go to college I'm not saying this to hurt your feelings but you know I don't want to set you up for failure and after like coming home in tears talking to my mother she was like look you know you don't have to be defined by any of their lower narrow expectations you define yourself for yourself by yourself so that's been my philosophy to not try to fit myself into uh, some preconceived, some preconceived notion that somebody else had made up because their mind is limited. You know, that doesn't, doesn't matter to me. So, and my goal is to help others disrupt that. So it's, uh, you know, that's why I was glad to have you on. It's been an honor to have you as part of our summit. Uh, we're going to have to have you back on again. I can't wait till you raise to uh, a billion dollar company. I'm gonna go ahead and call it out to the universe that it's going to happen. <laughs> Come in. Yeah. The first Latina unicorn. Yeah. I hear you, Max. We're going to have more because we're going to stop calling them unicorns because we're going to start expecting it. Right. Absolutely. Max Tuckman, uh, we're going to take your questions afterwards, but I will say it has been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thank you so much.